Okay, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Kyle Turner, who's a freelance writer based in Brooklyn, and his work has appeared in W Magazine, GQ, and the New York Times. So Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Very excited to speak with you. So Kyle, you wrote a really awesome essay article in W Magazine about the movie House of Gucci and camp. And I was saying before, like, I was kind of waiting for somebody to write something on this topic, because when I saw the ads for House of Gucci, I was like, okay, this looks kind of campy, but I'm not really sure where they're going with it. So I'm curious to know, like, before you watched the movie, what were your, like, what were you expecting to see? Like, did you think it was going to be campy or did you, I don't know, what would you say? Um, I hate to be this person, but I, I did expect it to be campy or have camp elements by virtue of Lady Gaga's presence. I think so much of her career and her corpus is predicated on exploring ideas of artifice and performance and excess. Um, and I think she is almost responsible for, not wholly, but like she has certainly helped mainstream um, in in very much an internet era usage of camp because um, she is always in costume, always in drag and always poking at these various layers um, of performativity. Uh, and so um, given that her last role was very much playing a drag version of herself, of herself, of herself, et cetera, um, I was very curious as to um, how she would channel those levels of access and artificiality into a story that is not and does not have anything to do with um, her life or anything to do with her career, but is very much located in like um, in this sense of glamour and commodification, if that makes sense. Yeah. So as you say in the article, like it's really hard to nail down what camp is. It's kind of elusive or you have this really interesting line. You said it's like smoke slinking from Lady Gaga's cigarette in the movie. I thought that was really perfect. Um, so a lot of people have attempted to come up with the definition, but uh, for the sake of understanding your article, like how, what would you say your definition of camp is? How would you explain it to someone who has no idea? You know, that's really hard. Um, um, I tend to gravitate towards a conception of camp um, as a sensibility or aesthetic that is challenging normative tastes or normative ideas of, of what a conventionally beautiful aesthetics are, um, whether that is um, conscious or intentional or not doesn't really matter as much to me. Mm -hmm but that there is something almost vulgar about it and vulgar about the way that we consume it, um, I think is really interesting. So I think like very, a very useful example is often like John Waters, yeah. uh, the filmography. Um, and I, I think the public persona of John Waters and that he's always sort of layering things on top of one another to see just how extreme you can go. but with a sense of whimsy about it. Um, there's an awareness, um, there's an awareness of the whimsy, but not so much of the uh, intention to break down these ideas of good taste. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, I, I guess that is how I would tend to codify 
camp there's like an for me like an implicit political connotation um <laughs> that there is that an affront is important although not necessarily um try hard or effortful yeah so what i'm hearing it's like you know you make this distinction about an object being camp itself versus the performance or our consciousness of the way we're engaging this object so uh, it seems like in that case that camp is kind of contingent upon certain cultural norms so like as certain cultural norms change, something may no longer be camp. It loses its campiness um, if it's no longer considered ironic or subversive. Um, and you were saying in the article, it's like, ooh, as soon as everything becomes camp, then like, we, that's when we know it's not camp anymore. It loses that edge. Um, so the other thing I was going to mention, so you're saying, you know, there are like two kinds of people that there are the people who call everything camp and then people who are much more, um, I guess, much more strict about how they're going to use that definition. And I feel like I'm definitely the kind who's like very quick to call things camp, but you seem to scrutinize a little bit more. So like, how do you make that decision? Like, how do you really know that something is pure straight up camp? That's a good question. I am more inclined to be skeptical or mm -hmm. doubtful of something being camp because um, I cite Bruce Le Bruce a lot in the article. He had written mm -hmm. a piece called Notes on Camp, Anti-Camp. And his argument is that uh, because of the very postmodern late capitalist world that we live in, everything, uh, especially in the United States, has a certain excessive uh, quality to it that, mm -hmm. um, there's this um spec that everything can be spectacleized for lack of a better word and because that and especially in particular um subcultural communities is true um i think it takes a lot for something to be like truly weird i think like a a, a good signifier of camp is that the way in which we interact with it is that it's very weird and it's very almost discomforting. Um, and I, maybe it's because my own um, uh, consumption habits, I'm not phased by things that often. I'm, um, I I'm certainly surprised or uh, maybe irritated by certain things, but like certainly not as often uh, as I am, um, or, or rather I'm not as often really taken aback by something as subversive and um extreme and big as things like lady gaga's performance in house of gucci might be mm -hmm. uh, or um the uh the film adaptation of the movie cats um and that got like a, a lot of flack but the the sheer business of that film the the lack of consistent scale, the fact that they used like um, digital fur technology. Um, it seemed like every choice that was being made um, did not even follow its own internal logic. And I think that's also very interesting in the context of camp that um, it tries to establish an internal logic or an internal lexicon, but is unable to even follow that. 
Okay, so I think, yeah, then part of it is like developing this coherent internal logic. I also feel like it depends on the, the viewer or the audience because like for, yeah, like one of the things that I, like one example I think of in terms of camp is like Disney Channel humor. And some people are like, why it's just Disney Channel? It's like stupid kids shows. But like the way I watch stuff like Hannah Montana or Sweet Life, you know, it, <laughs> the humor is really dumb like it's really corny um and you can just watch it just because like oh it's cute it's funny to pass the time but for me I always perceive that there was something like very intentional about the corniness and kind of mocking um this format of like teen sitcoms or like little kitty shows um so that in that sense, so like something like that, or like Mean Girls, for example, like when you first watch Mean Girls, like I think the humor is kind of campy, but then it becomes this like big cultural phenomenon that people always reference. And I'm like, well, I mean, maybe it's not so much camp anymore now that it's attained this kind of right. status. I don't know. I think what's interesting about camp, um, and camp and, and kitsch, I suppose, is... Um, the degrees to which it can be accepted within polite society because in a way i don't think you're necessarily incorrect about disney channel um stuff having um camp elements and that there is something kind of uncanny about it um and uh there is a, a tendency to dismiss those things as um at least not for adults necessarily mm -hmm. Um, or not for uh, like complete mainstream audiences. It's funny you mentioned that because um, last year or so, um, I had this strange like uh, inkling to rewatch a, a clip from the Amanda show with Amanda Bynes. <laughs> uh, I think she was in conversation at some point, um, but I, the Dawson's Creek parody that they did on the show called um, Moody's Life or something. Moody, Moody's Point. Um, yeah. Moody's Point. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I don't think that Moody's point is at all funny, but I do think um, the slanted nature mm -hmm. of of its um, performances and its aesthetic are very, very fascinating. And I, I think uh, because it exists in like this realm of pastiche and parody, I think you certainly could argue that it has camp elements. Um, and I think that it appeals to like a very specific demographic and is thus um, easily dismissed by other people. I think that could be considered camp because um, I think a lot of the thing, a lot of the like um, the central um, camp texts um, that are uh, cherished by um, most often queer male communities. Um, the desire was to rescue them from a broader, often straight audience who thought that they were uh, frivolous or stupid or not worth taking seriously or not worth loving. Um, although I think, although there's like tons of scholarship after Susan Sontag, but like I think one of her points was that there was love in embracing this artificiality and embracing these texts that no one else seemed to like mm -hmm. yeah so then what would you say about someone who claims that like the trump presidency was camp because like i saw a lot of article headlines like that i 
don't disagree um, that it has like a lot of the central as uh, like aesthetic components of, of camp as far as the um, ways in which he presented and, and uh, displayed his wealth and displayed um, his competency or lack thereof, his braggadocio and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, though, like the com- although I'm not like in- necessarily going to like argue that it's not. There's something discomfort. There's something like uncomfortable about calling something that is so uh, whose aesthetics are so a- attached to um, fascism, fascism and oppression um, that mm, I don't love. But then again, like uh, you, there are certainly arguments that a lot of like fascist aesthetics are camp um, mm-hmm. that like the damned. Um, and uh, the films of Lange Reifenstahl and, and all that, um, the ways in which those aesthetics have, um, and, and um, pieces of iconography have been appropriated uh, into often queer male culture. I think that, I think uh, that may allow that argument to hold a bit of water. Yeah. So another example that you mentioned in the article, you say that Chromatica is not camp. But would you say our pop is? Yes. So what's the difference? What makes our pop camp and not chromatica? I agree with you, but I want to hear how you would explain it. Because I try to do that and it's it's hard sometimes. Um, I think chromata chromatica came at a time when the language, the visual language language and sonic language, I don't know as much about music, but the visual language of, of Lady Gaga's sort of public um, performance art uh, became very normal. Um, like every pop star uh, is reacting to it in some way, either by riffing on or elaborating upon it or um, doing the opposite and, and seeming as like respectable and, and presentable as possible. And Art Pop was maybe the last time she went really weird and um did even like the the a hyper dramatic and hyper aestheticized version of what she already was doing such that like it wasn't until much later that art pop has been um reclaimed or reevaluated uh by certain cultural critics um but chromatica is doesn't necessarily have that same sense of strangeness I think it's, um, I think it also is striving to not be that anyways. I think um, having not listened to to Chromatica in like a couple of months, um, but my, my, if my memory serves me correctly, so much of Chromatica's um, thesis is more about like, the internet loves this term, but normalizing, certain discussions or or ideas regarding um, trauma and gender and identity uh, in a way that is much more palatable and not necessarily trying to subvert any sort of existing um, cultural aesthetic or language or norm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. For me, our pop is like, it's a parody of Lady Gaga herself, like this right. kind of dance pop mega idol who 
Like, I think the fact that most of her other albums claim to be making some kind of important statement, whether it's about, you know, trauma or like gender identity or just being an outcast, it's like this seriousness is just, that's just straight up like corny. Whereas to me, our pop is like, it's making fun of that very thing. And it's, that's why it's right. interesting. That's why I think it's camp. Right. It's like, it's very meta. It's like, it's, observing from up high what god is or what she claims to be um whereas the in her previous albums that seriousness and the i think maybe lack of self-awareness um uh benefited from a camp reading whereas like now that she's been doing it for over a decade that seriousness that seriousness in chromatica i think is just sort of standard for a lot mm -hmm. of pop artists yeah, and it's as if, as if like pop music is really this serious um, medium when really it's this mass produced kind of phenomenon that I feel like our pop really is commenting on that, that it's not this profound thing. So if you're going to equate it with like, oh, we're going to make this major social statement, like really, it's just hard to take seriously. But speaking of it being it hard to take Lady Gaga seriously, let's start with um, the accent in House of Gucci. So you say she's doing so, so, so much. And I love this line. You said her thick, unrelenting, maybe questionable accent slathered onto every line, no matter how quotidian. So it's like, it's clear that this is, um, she's overdoing all this Italian yes. accent. Um, and it, like, for me, it was funny because like, okay, she's Italian-American and the kind of gesturing and the, the accent of Italian-American is totally different from like a Northern Italian from Italy. And there are like moments where I saw the Italian-American New Yorker slipping out and I was like, this is, I can't, like, I really can't take this seriously. What do you make of this accent? Uh, um, I watched it a second time and I was um, high, I had taken an edible. <laughs> And the performance seemed even more brilliant to me the second time around. Yeah. What was absolutely stunning to me was that the dubious nature or veracity of the accent did not matter at all. Um, it was like, it, it, it's, it's very strange and very unusual in its inconsistencies and the way that it sort of vacillates between her performing like a, a quote-unquote accurate northern italian accent and and as you were saying the italian american brooklyn uh, not brooklyn but like new york um uh, affectations kind of slipping through all of those strange flaws i think she was able to use to her advantage. It, um, I wrote another piece about uh, um, Camp for uh, Conte asks them. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that I said was that like, it was watch, it was like watching someone like Uta Hagen or Stella Adler um, play Medea, but wearing a clown suit. <laughs> all the aberrations of this performance, all the things that should be wrong and should be distracting or uh, somehow undermine the believability of the performance or undermine um the consistency of the performance are instead um taken in and accentuates the 
the emotional thrill and the um, emotional conviction of the character. It's like, it doesn't matter that she's pronouncing this thing wrong or that she's like over pronouncing this sentence. What she is trying to convey as that character is so clear and so crystallized um, that I'm genuinely quite surprised at how good it was a second time. Um, it's, it, it's really impressive um, the way that she, like very few contemporary actors, is able to take these things that would normally like kneecap a performance, but actually sort of make the performance more um, unique and more idiosyncratic. Yeah, and that speaks to this tension you, you're talking about between Gaga the serious actress and Gaga the Metawatt star, because it feels like I'm watching Lady Gaga pretending to be Patrizia Reggiani, but it's Lady Gaga at the end of the day. Like this is this is what that her pronunciation. That was that was very cool. The Italian roots, but so it's yeah, it's like I just feel like I'm watching Gaga. And it's like uh, it's just her, you know. Yeah, I mean that's that's a movie star. That is, she's a she's a movie star. I I think what's interesting about Hasaguchi is that I am sensing that she has this like um, almost Barbara Streisand like problem, and that like both of them wanted to be become actors before they became singers, um, and she. Uh, neither of them were getting cast and things so they like chose singing um and it was through it, it, music became the conduit through which they could they could become actors basically mm -hmm. and then there was the question of like as barbara streisand's career took off whether she could actually be a serious actor or whether she was destined to just be like become barbara streisand who is in a movie barbara streisand that she would never yeah. like quote unquote disappear into a role and mm -hmm. i do think that um our society um we live in a society but i do think that like audiences have been encouraged and conditioned to prize actors disappearing into a role as opposed to understanding that um there are really there's a a, a litany and a melange of ways in which a performance can be good um that is not that does not necessarily rest upon the actors disappearing into a role and i think that is very much symptomatic of the fact that like Marvel movies and IP tent poles are like the dominant um, language of like the current pop cultural landscape. Mm -hmm. um, and then like everything else has to be like prestige and all those actors have to disappear into the roles that they're playing. But the fun things, fun thing about movie stars is that their public persona comes first and everything that they're in bends around it. And there's the opportunity like with Lady Gaga or like with Barbara Streisand to critique or to interrogate or to play with the, that public image and to play with that public persona. And so it doesn't bother me at all that you're watching one, you're like uh, Royal, you're, you're watching Lady Gaga sort of play dress up and, and play or pretend to be Patrizia Reggiano. Um, because I think that ultimately speaks to how she uses artifice as a way to, to convey like her own sense of authenticity. Mm -hmm. So then is that like going into a role as yourself and as you said, like kind of 
playing with your public persona through that role. Is that camp, would you say? I think the way we engage with it is camp, yes, because there is, um, I think the, that a movie star or a, a pop star like um, Lady Gaga or Barbara Streisand or even Beyonce mm -hmm. um, is trying so hard to do um, what I think audiences expect of them in terms of becoming serious dramatic actor. Um, and yet is unable to and audiences are unable to or unwilling to sort of engage with that performance on like a more meta level mm -hmm. uh, i think that that could justify camp reading okay that's fair but then the other example you give is the kind of leto gaga dynamics um which you say so it's like there's this dynamic between like high art and low pop culture and you liken it to Gucci's products and their legacy, which you said it's gaudy, weird, joyfully pointed in an unusual and perhaps rare way. Um, so is the dynamic between them, I don't know, like, well, explain that a little bit more, what you were trying to say about them, because I found that really interesting. I think that both Lady Gaga and Jared Leto are the way in which we are receiving those performances on a similar wavelength. I think they're basically in the same movie, um, unlike, uh, no, Andrew, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Adam Driver. But I think that they are approaching it in very different ways. I think Lady Gaga very much wants to be the, the serious dramatic actor who can quote unquote disappear into a role. Uh, but it's just simply unable to because that is the person who she is. Um, that's the kind of performer um, that she is. Uh, whereas Jared Leto, I think, knows that he's doing, he, he is aware of like a different kind of excess that is kind of mocking in a way. And maybe to some people, vaguely offensive. Um, but as far as the sort of dialectical thing between high culture and low culture, I think. They are, think, they are both um, sort of positioning themselves or situating themselves and uh, aspirationally being um, either high culture or low culture. Um, I think Jared Leto's performance very much is striving for like low, uh, sort of um, lowbrow interpretation of that character, whereas Lady Gaga's is aspiring to be much more highbrow. I think they ultimately are received as uh, as these very gaudy, um, very artificial things that are still that are still trying to signify as certain kind of luxury. Am I making sense? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Um, I mean, just looking at the film as a whole, the fact that it seems like they're intentionally trying to be intense in their performances, trying to make it serious but i think it fails i think it's just it's hard to take seriously this is why i'm not inclined to say that like it's campy overall i feel like if they were trying to be intense and to fail at the same time like that would have been campy but the fact that it doesn't like add up at the end i'm like eh, i don't know do you think it fails like do you think it i don't know i'm i just didn't leave me with the positive taste in my mouth yeah, 
Jack Halberstam might, might invoke the queer art of failure here. Um, I really like the film. Um, I think it has an unusual relationship to fashion as far as the fashion movies go, because um, fashion movies tend to really, um, fashion movies tend to really adore um, the artistic freedom of what fashion can be. Whereas mm -hmm. House of Gucci sees fashion and a kind of a masculinist, um, very narrow fashion as capital thing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, I was explaining this to my therapist recently who did not like the movie and does not think it's camp. Um, and I think there's like a weird kind of anti-spectacle element to it where all of the things that should be like really spectacular and um, really ornate about like this kind of story and the um, class milieu within which it exists. Very tamped down, very like monochromatic. All those impulses are like um, capitulated in really weird ways. Um, and I think it makes both, it makes the characters like, or the actors like Jared Leto and Lady Gaga um, sort of articulate that spectacle instead uh, instead of having their surroundings do that for them. Okay. I see what you're getting at. And I, I felt like that in the beginning in the club scene when they're playing like a Donna Summer song. And I was like, okay, this is going to be like really gaudy, really like over the top. And you have the, the disco music and the fashion and all that. And I just felt like after that, it's like it's it built up my expectations and then it kind of left me hanging from that point because it wasn't this like huge spectacle as you said but i think yeah like the gaga leto performance that kept it going in a kind of sedated way but i did expect more i have to say like i thought it was really going to be over the top and make a statement but it didn't give me everything i was looking for um, i completely understand and and that I think is like the relative consensus. I recognize that I am in the in the relative minority of really loving this film. In that I would watch a longer cut. And mm -hmm. um, the thing that I realized when I was explaining my position to my therapist was that I was basically saying it's good because it's boring. Mm, okay, that's interesting. I'm, I'm being sort of facetious, but yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I'll watch it again. Like I enjoyed it. I still have my criticisms, but it was definitely entertaining. Um, the length, I don't know about the length. Like I do feel like I kept checking the time because I was like, okay, right, how much more is going to go on? But but maybe that itself is a, is a commentary. Maybe that has a significance. I mean, I think it's like an interesting act of misdirection because like when you hear the log line for this movie, you think that it's going to be salacious and exciting, yeah. um, that there's going to be all this uh, buildup um, that's really, um, that is, is able to sort of ref reflect the Machiavellian um, strategizing through its visual language. Mm 
mm-hmm. um, and all that over to- over the top ornate uh, stuff um, in terms of its like uh, again like social milieu. But then like the movie doesn't actually explore in great depth the part where she's going to hire those assassins to kill um, her hus- her ex husband. It doesn't really deal with like the fallout of that. It just mm-hmm. sort of like jumps and then the movie ends. Yeah. She's dead. Like she takes the apartment. Sorry that I'm spoiling the movie. Takes the apartment and then she's on trial. And then that's it. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. This is this was all about like the weird um the weird strategizing from everyone in the family. And then that is all that matters because it becomes this, this um, I think, downfall of uh, like a certain framework that suggests that um, business, that family is business and business is family. I was thinking about like The Godfather and the Damned, watching it a second time, and I and although like The Godfather does not wholeheartedly endorse the idea of of, of framing um, family and business t- together. Um, as uh, allegorical of the American dream, um, mm-hmm. I think it still encourages the idea that it is exciting to watch that. Uh, and I was thinking of like Lucina Visconti's mm-hmm. The Dam because like everyone is doing a different performance in that in that film. It is in a different movie, and so with regards to House of Gucci, um, I think the fact that the that everyone is encouraged to to be as a part of the family business and that ultimately spells their doom is really fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, that's a big element of Italian culture. And I think it speaks to this, like this cult of uh, blood loyalty that Italians have that like usually becomes very destructive because if you're going to be like blindly unconditionally loyal to the family like sometimes you're gonna have to do some shady things because i don't know that's just what you do for family and i think that's why these mob movies or these italian family dramas you know get big audiences but there's something very uh alluring but dark twisted about that but i mean the last thing i want to ask you just thinking of the trajectory of Gaga's career, what would you like to see next for her? What do you think would be a good move to make? I, hmm. I have thought about this, um, actually. And for some reason, my, my mind is blanking because of um, quarantine fog brain. And <laughs> my apologies for that. Yeah. Um, I've thought about all kinds of movies that that she could do and all kinds of musicals and i um i think after seeing this what i was most drawn to was the idea of her um playing the matriarch in i claudius Mm. um, which is based on the robert graves novel and it became a a successful miniseries in the 1970s uh, and uh uh, lascivia, Livia. I'm forgetting the name, um, but the conniving matriarch of the um, the that family, Judeo, um, 
I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking okay. right now. Uh, but the matriarch of that family uh, okay. basically designs and moves all of her family like uh, chess pieces in a really exciting way. And I think she would be incredible at that role. She, I think um, in Hasegoshi, she proved herself very adept at playing someone capable of um, Machiavellian um, sadism, basically. Do you want to see more music or do you think she should take a break for a while? I would like to see mu more music, but I confess that my favorite version of Lady Gaga is Lady Gaga when she's a jazz singer. I'm very, I'm very much into uh, um, the American Songbook and um, standards and all that stuff. And I saw her live with uh, Tony Bennett. Yeah, wow. that was interesting about that performance was that she was both sincerely being a jazz singer but also performing the role of a jazz singer and sort of mm -hmm. vacillating between the two um and i think that she her performance style and her interest in in different kinds of performance uh, and performances as a vehicle for truth um and artificiality as a vehicle for truth or towards truth mm -hmm. um I think that very much serves her in that genre, which is not to say that I don't like her pop music. I like her pop music very much. I like the um, her intertextual references to different movies and different artists and, and whatnot. But like on a pure pleasure level, I love her as a jazz singer. That's interesting that you say that because I was listening to um, the most recent Tony Bennett one that they did and I think what's interesting to me, like I was listening to that and then the duet that he did with Winehouse. And you can see that like vocally, both Gaga and Winehouse can be real jazz vocalists. I do think there's more of this performative element though with Gaga because she is this pop star. And I think there's more of this play between, again, artificiality and authenticity that with Winehouse, like she's a straight up jazz singer. And I, I don't think there's much of a question she's not performing anything else like maybe i guess her her aesthetic is a little bit i don't know not typical of a jazz performer but in terms of like music mm -hmm. like that's her whereas with gaga yeah like it's interesting how she fully embodies it just with the the cadences and the posturing of a jazz singer um mm -hmm. juxtaposed against you know like born this way or art pop or whatever you know? mm -hmm. i think she's best um, when doing jazz alone, as mm -hmm. opposed to when she is doing it with Tony Bennett, uh, because there is, I think, an impulse for her to like, kind of, not so much show him up, but prove that she can do it. When mm -hmm. we know that she can do it, right? She's a good singer. Just like, regardless of whether you like her music or not, she is a talented vocalist, and she has the skill set. Um, and I think when she is re recording alone or performing alone, those. Uh, performing the songs alone there isn't um as much of an effortfulness to uh to enter the role of a jazz singer she can just do it and also uh, for the record i was thinking of the julia claudine dynasty and the character was livia okay All right. that was the one awesome so kyle anything you want to plug before we wrap up um i believe i'm going to have a piece about the new screen movie and Wes Craven's kind of anxieties about 
cultures of violence and um, and uh, the reboot and whatnot uh, for W Magazine uh, in the coming week or so. Cool. And where can people follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. Justice Booner is my name because I'm a very creative person. Um, and you can find my writing on, uh, and I'm also uh, on Instagram at Tyle Kerner. And you can find my writing uh, on the internet at W Magazine, and GQ, and New York Times, and um, NPR and Slate. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thanks for joining us. This was fun. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time. Awesome.